This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Terbish. Welcome back from the break. I'm Christian Terbish. This is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio on Sirius XM. Today we've been talking about public transportation. My first guest, Jeff Knippel, General Manager of SEPTA, uh, one of the largest public transit systems in the United States. If you've missed the first half of the show, you can go on workoftomorrow.com to get access to this show as well as all our previous episodes. I want to now welcome my second guest, uh, Florian Reuter, who is the CEO of Volocopter. Uh, Florian is not only a fellow German, but he also promises us what we have all been waiting for, that is flying cars. Welcome, Florian. Hello. Welcome. Florian, tell us about Volocopter, for those of us not familiar with this. Yes, happy to do so. So, um, Volocopter was started in 2011 um, in what I believe is the most famous yoga ball ever, (laughs) when our founders, Stefan and Alex, showcased the first ever multi-copter propelled by distributed electric propulsion, um, so a battery-driven distributed electric multi-copter, and they were conducting the first flight back then, making it into the uh, Guinness Book of World Records. And um, what started as a curiosity has turned into a very serious enterprise nowadays. So we are a company based in Germany now, rapidly expanding our team and building a very unique and novel type of vertical takeoff and landing um, aircraft. Generally speaking, people would say we are uh, looking like a supersized drone or like an electric helicopter type of thing, um, capable of transporting passengers with very unique features, like it's extremely safe, so we can get to unprecedented safety levels with that kind of technology. It's very low noise. Uh, emission-free due to its um, battery, so it's absolutely feasible of um, operating these kind of vehicles at scale inside urban population centers, and um, therefore we are absolutely convinced that the Volocopter will have an impact on how we all experience urban mobility today. And the famous use case is a Dubai's flying taxi. I, I heard you made some headwinds there uh, over the last year in terms of getting at least a prototype demoed. Yes, we did, indeed. So um, Dubai was the first city to approach us and embracing the concept of an autonomous air taxi. So we worked together with um, the authorities down there and um, had, you know, found some very challenging environmental conditions, um, primarily due to the heat um, over the summertime there. Um, so we uh, took our vehicle down there, um, rehearsed for uh, a number of weeks in order to test all the components and the entire system under the um, desert conditions. And uh, once we were satisfied with the results and gained approval from all relevant authorities, we moved into the city center to actually showcase, as you mentioned, the first ever autonomous flight, uh, demo flight of an uh, air taxi. And um, Dubai is very much committed to implementing these kind of services within the next five years. So this thing is real. I mean, for those of us uh, who have not been on, uh, have not had the pleasure of seeing one, I encourage you to go on the YouTube channel from Volocopter or just uh, Google up Volocopter. There's a cool video on on their side. Uh, so 30 minutes of flying time, as I understand it. Two seats with like 18 propellers on top. The thing takes off vertically. So why is this just not a smart helicopter? I mean, what, what makes this kind of so special? So what, what makes it special um, is um, that... We are addressing all the shortcomings of traditional helicopters. So um, a helicopter already today is a huge, full, um, helpful and versatile um, aircraft. However, um, their safety record is um, 
mediocre at most. And um, they are extremely loud. They consume a lot of um, traditional fuel and um, therefore are just not very widely used. And uh, we address all of those issues with you know, a new technological approach. And the Volocopter, in contrast to that, um, is extremely safe can be emission-free and is very quiet, and therefore we believe it fulfills all the prerequisites to be finally applying these kind of um, aircraft at scale inside the cities. So for those of us who have been driving electric cars, we understand the concept of, of battery power and uh, the shortage of those. Uh, so if I would take apart a volocopter, can you just give us uh, technical details or with, at the level that you're comfortable with yeah. uh, and give us a sense of how many kilowatt hours are stored in the batteries, how heavy these batteries are? Yeah. So, um, yeah, let me see how, much, you know, how many details I can actually share with you. But here's the basic concept. So um, we started out in the German ultralight regime. That's the reason why the Volocopter um, you know, has been designed under a very rigid weight dimensioning um, exercise. And therefore, um, the original outset was that we can have a total maximum takeoff mass of 450 kilograms. Um, of which 160 kilograms are reserved for uh, two passengers. So the entire structure, including the battery, can only have 290 kilograms, which leaves very little room for uh, you know, any, uh, let's say, um, you know, comfort features and so on. So we really uh, stripped the carbon structure down to the absolute minimum in order to put in a battery that was as big as possible and as heavy as the remaining weight um, you know, budget would allow for. So um, basically, we have a, a battery weighing around 100 kilogram, um, let's say approximately 20 kilowatt hours, um, which ultimately um, gives us these 30-minute uh, flight time. Now, um, that was under the original ultralight regime. That regime has now been um, changed by the European Commission or by the European Parliament, um, giving out a new basic regulation, now allowing us 600 kilogram, and we're in the process of getting the entire vehicle uh, now commercially certified with EASA, um, stepping out of the ultralight regime and thereby, you know, um, let's say, not being restricted to these uh, very politically driven um, weight barriers of the 600 kilo. So we're looking to build larger vehicles for fully commercial um, certification in the next step. So you right now have basically like a quarter of a Tesla battery, uh, I mean, directionally. Uh, yes, and the reason being uh, primarily weight restriction. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And uh, how how does this scale the technology? So imagine now the European Union comes and relaxes the weight constraint by a factor of uh, allowing you to have an extra 100 kilograms of battery. How does the yeah. engineering of the vehicle scale with kind of now the bigger uh, the bigger batteries and potentially longer reach? But also then yeah. you, you 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 can't just pop in another battery, right? This is a complicated engineered device. Um, well, that's the interesting part of it, right? It's, a, it's an um, optimization problem with a number of factors. Um, so if you change one, you're changing pretty much everything. So we're constantly, for example, debating the optimal layout uh, with respect to um, the dimensions of range, influencing weight, influencing performance, influencing um, the efficiency we want to gain, influencing the footprint that the uh, physical dimensions of the vehicle have. So all of these are, if you change one, you're changing all other facets as well. Um, and that's a very interesting discussion, and it requires a lot of disciplines and a lot of uh, simulation power to actually come out with, with you know, feasible and uh, meaningful results, which we believe um, we have come up with for um, a range of products we're going to uh, bring out. Um, 
we see that the technology can be scaled, at least to the degree that we find feasible. Um, so we are absolutely looking at expanding the range um, by having, for example, bigger batteries or larger batteries um, for a two-seater, but we're also working, for example, on a four-seater. So that's um, definitely something where the technology can be scaled to quite easily. But again, it always requires a lot of uh, trade-offs to be taken into consideration, which is a quite complex challenge. So assuming we'll work out or you work out the technology, what's the yeah. use case then? So is it is your vision like an Uber-style ride that I sit there with an app and I just press like, well, I want to go over to my friend's house? Or is it more like a city tour for tourists where you have like pr a predefined route and you're just moving people around? Uh, what, what is the kind of, what, what use case do you envision? See, that's exactly what we uh, love to interact with our potential customers because there are so many ideas of what this technology can be, um, you know, be used for, where it can bring value, that we're actually containing a long list of uh, potential applications and um, we are constantly engaging with potential customers in assessing these and trying to prioritize them. So we approach it, um, so first of all, we see numerous applications that this technology can be used for. Uh, we're approaching it from a, a timing perspective in saying we will start out as this and then I'll eventually it will lead to that. So we will start out as um, a um, new air vehicle that tries to fit into existing regulation as good as possible by, for example, putting in a joystick that can be operated by a pilot on board, requiring a traditional pilot license, very close to a helicopter license, in order to not to have to change too much to get going, right? The vehicle is there. We have received first certification uh, by aviation authorities here in Germany. So we, we are very eager to get going and actually start, you know, applying this technology in the market. For example, in cases like uh, first responder, um, potentially tourism flights, and so on. Um, initially taking up one of the two seats we have in our first vehicle by a pilot. That's fine. Of course, you want to get to higher um, economic output <laughs> by you know, freeing up that second seat um, by having the vehicle operate more and more autonomously, um, which is absolutely feasible from a technology perspective, and therefore we are uh, diligently working towards it. And that's what makes uh, Dubai so interesting, because they were the first city to openly embrace the concept of an autonomous air taxi, um, which, of course, is something that we have on our roadmap, and we look to roll out to other cities across the geographies as well. So um, the second step will then be to introduce such air taxi services um, to cities, eventually, or first of all, uh, going point-to-point -point connections. So, for example, imagine a route um, connecting you from the airport to the city center. Um, uh, you know, premium example of that would be um, to have a connection from Newark Airport into downtown Manhattan. That's a 10-mile you know, stretch um, as the crow flies. There's no reason why that should take longer than 10 to 15 minutes. And uh, we can offer that as a volocopter. And um, the infrastructure requirements are pretty low compared to other means of transport, which should make it very you know, feasible for cities to actually start experimenting with these kinds of routes and implementing them um, step by step. Um, so therefore, we will start with point-to-point -point connections. And then eventually, this will develop into a um, network of routes potentially even including on-demand uh, takeoff and landing spots, so we call them on-demand volo ports, that can be made up theoretically and uh, dynamically over time for, you know, on any Walmart parking lot where you can reserve your volocopter landing spot for five minutes, let's say. No car parks there for that time being. Uh, you order the volocopter to where you are. It comes, picks you up. 
you step in and it takes you directly as close as possible to your destination. So the scenario that you just described is exactly what we work towards, but that, of course, um, will come in steps and it will take some time until we get to the last, let's say, build-out phase. But Florian, as a fellow German, I can't help but make a joke about the Americans. You mentioned the the use case of going from the airport to the city. In civilized countries like Germany and Switzerland, we have a train for that, right? And that thing is bloody fast and has a very good uh, capacity and probably a really attractive dollars per ride. Uh, Isn't this more like a wow thing? And uh, don't get me wrong, I love wow things, but uh, I just don't see the incremental use value of going from my Munich airport to downtown Munich uh, as opposed to taking the, the S-Bahn, taking the train, the volocopter doesn't really buy me a lot of time. Is that fair? Uh, to some degree. So first of all, I love the wow thing as well, and I'm happy to start out as a wow thing. Oh, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. Um, wow is cool. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, this is a wow thing, definitely. But um, on the, uh, you know, in, a, in a larger context, I would argue that um, the volocopter isn't your vehicle or mode of transport of choice for any route. It is your mode of choice for particular routes and for particular times. So um, we are very explicitly looking at um, you know, different cities and explicit routes in order to see what is, what is a route where the volocopter actually brings value for the most part. If you have a completely you know, a free lane and a perfect bus service, you, you don't... You know, you don't really need a volocopter. You, you don't need to go up in the air. But if it's um, congested all the time and you could actually avoid that traffic by flying over it, you know, that uh, can um, be very attractive for some parts. And, uh, you know, we are located here in Karlsruhe, and I always keep joking. It wasn't made for Karlsruhe because, you know, this is a technology that's primarily geared for the megacities across the globe. But at the same time, even cities as small as Karlsruhe have congestion problems and we have that all over the world so there is you know a lot of routes that we find where people are actively embracing the introduction of such technology and the second topic aside from congestion is topography so uh, topology so um, if you have waterways and so on um, and you're faced with the question of okay i can you know drive around and go to a city uh, go to a bridge or a tunnel um, or I can just simply go straight as the crow flies. Um, you know, as soon as you identify such a route, that's where you will in, in, in implement a volocopter service. It's not something that you will always use. It's something that you will use for particular routes at particular times. And again, the Newark downtown Manhattan thing isn't soft today, uh, and I don't think it would be soft even if it was Germany implementing the public transport there. As somebody being born in Karlsruhe, Florian, let me assure our listeners here that Karlsruhe indeed is not New York. Uh, in case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Florian Reuter, the CEO of Volocopter, who is uh, launching a flying car, something uh, safe, quiet, autonomous, electric, German in production right now. And it's really not a car, it's, 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 it's a little, vo- it's a Volocopter, 18 propellers, vertical takeoff, everything in it. Um, so the, the ramp up, it, it's, it's an issue of time, right? So you, you convinced us, to, to some extent you convinced us, it's an, it's an issue of when and not if. Um, so the numbers I've seen on uh, your website about Dubai is, um, wow, it's uh, 25% of uh, Dubai traffic in 2030. Um, so help me out on that one. <laughs> so that you have to put into perspective. <laughs> Thank overall, you. <laughs> that's the overall ambition of the government of, of Dubai 
of um, you know completing 25% of all transportation needs in an autonomous mode by that time. So that doesn't only apply to uh, autonomous flying taxis, it applies to autonomous driving cars, autonomous boats, and so on. So that's across all modes. And um, they intend to make air taxis a part of that autonomous transportation mix. So if I'm thinking about these RAM plans right now, I, I think a lesson learned in technology is it takes a while, right? So even great technologies take a while. I mean, if we think about the whole diffusion of the hybrid engine, the electric engine in, in, in cars, it just even really, really good technologies took a long time from initial research to the development to having a prototype and from prototype to real distribution, oftentimes still a matter of, of decades. Um, what is give give us a sense when when will I come to Munich or any, any other German cities and I, I see volocopters around with some likelihood that I'm now seeing Teslas on the road? I mean, is this yeah. ten years or is this forty years? <laughs> Great question. So, um, no contest that you know um, historically some uh, the diffusion of some of these technologies has taken a very long time. Um, I have a background. I, I um, you know used to work for Siemens. We were a huge organization, and in order for us to develop a new business, and that being meaningful for Siemens, it had to be in the hundreds of millions as soon as possible and have to have the potential of going into the billions. Now, I feel very comfortable in having joined a startup now, which you know is a much smaller organization, and we can live off a step-by-step -step approach. Of course, eventually we see huge potential in this uh, market, but we totally realize that this is going to take some time and we will take it step-by-step. So I'm absolutely far as I, uh, uh, fine, as I said earlier, to start as a wow effect and introduce this in some, uh, you know, willing cities uh, very early on as a wow factor potentially for, you know, more elite customers. That's okay to start out like that until uh, full regulation and so on will embrace the concept of full autonomy. We will get the costs down. We will drive the volumes up and so on, ultimately to being a, a serious and um, how do you say, competitive uh, substitution for other modes of transport, at least partially for that. Um, so this is uh, something that will take time, but we are perfectly prepared to um, live out that time and get on the learning curve as fast as possible and you know, be ready for when that opportunity opens. Um, I don't expect this to be necessarily happening in Germany first. So we are already operating global. Um, as you might have seen, you know, we have done the demonstration flight in Dubai. We exhibited the volocopter during the CES, Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, earlier this year. So we are uh, you know, going wherever the interest is and wherever regulatory bodies and city officials are starting to embrace that concept. And again, there's many, many applications we can serve before even going into the city and flying over populated areas and implementing full taxi services. So um, again, we are willing to take this stepwise, but are very confident that we will see it sooner than many people expect because we were surprised ourselves to see cities across the world already being willing to test it out. So we actually currently plan three different test demonstrations uh, during the course of 2019 uh, in order to demonstrate not just the vehicle but the entire ecosystem that's required to provide such a service, so including the air traffic management integration we need, including the uh, landing the uh, infrastructure, the charging infrastructure, and so on. So you will already see test demonstrations next year, and we expect to see first implementations of commercial routes as early as 
2020, 2021, potentially with limited, let's say, volume yet, but uh, you will already be able to travel somewhere to actually experience that kind of uh, commercial service. Is autonomous flying harder or easier than autonomous driving? So, good question. From a technology perspective, I would say it's pretty similar. It has a lot of similarities, um, not 100%, but to a large degree. Um, however, the environment in which you're operating is much easier than on the ground. Um, for the most part, um, you have much more room to maneuver and to avoid other, let's say, obstacles. Um, you also have, uh, to some degree, some obstacles that may not be cooperative in your system. So central coordination, central deconflicting may not work if you're flying into a bunch of birds. Um, but nevertheless, overall, uh, you have a much more um, educated and technology better equipped uh, environment than you have on the ground. So I believe, bottom line for me, it, it's easier to fly autonomous than to drive autonomous. Has that uh, optimism taken a hit with uh, the last week's accident at Uber? This is a development that we follow very closely because, of course, public perception will have an influence on policymakers and so on. And, um, you know, I, I just think we as an industry have to be very diligent about the steps that we take. We can go too fast um, without wanting to judge on, you know, any, any particular entity here. But uh, we have to be very well aware that there is a certain degree of skepticism and we have to uh, confront that as an industry and work towards it. Ultimately, I think if we can keep the discussion rational, uh, people will see that the data, you know, ultimately will prove that the computer is the better driver. Um, that's something that we see and that we absolutely believe in. So uh, we work very hard to approach it from a more uh, evidence-based uh, perspective and say to cities, look, we, can, we are happy to start out in an environment where we're not flying over people initially, give you the operating data that you require in order to feel confident around it. And once you feel confident, we can, you know, decrease the operational restrictions and move to more and more relevant areas, which is an approach we are fine with and we accept. And, uh, of course, these kind of incidents uh, definitely shape the public perception and also shape the way and the level of, um, let's say, scrutiny that we get from uh, policymakers around the globe. Florian, you mentioned that you worked for Siemens before, and I think you got a capital infusion from Daimler recently. Uh, yep. Could this type of innovation happen within a BMW or a Daimler, or what is it of uh, having being that small, somewhat independent startup that allows you to do this wow type of technology? You know, from a theoretical perspective, you would say, of course, Daimler has all the resources to build something like that faster and better than Volocopter, and Airbus must be even better positioned to do that. Um, at the same time, you have a huge legacy business requiring constant innovation, requiring answering customer requests and so on, requiring to you know, make returns very early on, and you have this constant scrutiny of uh, resource allocation processes. And from uh, what I've learned at Siemens, it's extremely hard to overcome this, what is called the innovator's dilemma. I'm pretty sure at Wharton you are familiar Yeah, we heard of that it. thing. Though it wasn't uh, developed at Wharton, I have to tell you, unfortunately. Okay. So, absolutely, this is something that I've, you know, experienced firsthand, having worked in a, in a, in a huge organization. So, I feel very confident that uh, within a startup, within a young, small enterprise initially, um, you are more flexible to react to, um, you know, unforeseen uh, incidents. You are more flexible to pivot. You um, are talking to more risk-affine investors. I think that's the crucial point. And um, you have more time to develop your business. 
you know, within Siemens, we always said if you're not making at least 500 million turnover a year, you're a rounding error in the annual report. So you're not of relevance at all until you reach that point. And you will not get a lot of patients to reach that point. And this is completely different here at Volocopter. You know, we'll have a big party once we reach 100 million turnover. So it's a different perspective, and that overrules the level of resources or competence you might initially have at the outset. And I'm absolutely convinced of that, and that is why I'm very confident that this type of innovation will be brought to the larger audience, you know, coming from startups rather than the, the large incumbents. I think that's a really interesting in, uh, insight that you share there, Florian, that uh, for a, a regular tech company, even if it's doing well, hitting 20, 30, 40% growth rates over the years is already a lot. And so growing from zero to 500 million is just based on any evidence in the past, if you take out Google and Facebook, it's like really, really, really rare, right? And so this idea of uh, having a culture where 50 million is celebrated as a milestone and a big success, I think gives a small startup a, a, a big edge. So what's next for you? So what's what's the next milestone? So there's there's a Dubai kind of project you mentioned, uh, kind of other initiatives. If you yeah. think about like w the next big milestone for you, what does it look like? So we are constantly improving our vehicle. Um, you know, we've we've already flown. We've received first um, certification from German aviation authorities. So um, you know, we can test out and experiment much more than we could in the past, which is a tremendous advantage now. Thereby improving our uh, you know, simulations, going back into empirical studies, and so on. So that's a virtuous cycle of, you know, uh, learning, as we call it. Um, so we are constantly improving our product. We're now at the second generation, preparing for the third generation of the product, which shall be commercially licensed by EASA. And that process has already been initiated, so the European um, um, Aviation Safety Agency, which ultimately will give us a ticket to start being active commercially on a global scale. Right? We'll have to, of course, uh, then talk to FAA, but they are closely aligned with EASA. So this is something that is up for very high uh, on our roadmap. And, of course, we're now um, having a first series of vehicles that we can start demonstrating and testing under different environments. So we've been to Dubai, and we'll certainly... Um, continue to experiment uh, in, in that environment, and we want to um, build out further test cases in other parts of the world. So we are currently um, conducting this grand analysis of, you know, where should we test out what in order to learn the most for global to prepare for global rollout. Um, so expect to see um, us selecting different use cases over the coming months, and then starting, you know, very uh, diligent negotiations with the partners on the ground in order to say, um, you know, what can we do uh, in order to implement a full ecosystem in your context and to showcase something that we haven't already learned in Dubai or somewhere else. So we learn as much as possible in as little time as possible in order to prepare for commercial rollout a year or two later. Says Florian Reuter, the CEO of Volocopter. Vielen Dank, Florian. Greetings to the, the home base there. We've reached the end of the show today and was quite a show with uh, Scepter buses in Philadelphia and flying cars in Dubai. Uh, let me thank my sound expert uh, Dion and my producer Matt Jets for their wonderful support. If you want to have access to some of our older episodes, check out our website, workoftomorrow.com. We hope you can join us again this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Terich, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 